Father, we certainly, Lord, uh, do want to count our blessings. We know that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. We thank you, Lord, for eternal life by faith in your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the spiritual life. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to take in your word. And, uh, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that every single day you provide us with your goodness. And we know the goodness of God endures forever. We pray, Lord, that we might take in your word with pause of volition and sanctify the believers here through your truth because your word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles the book of John, John 5.24. We're not quite done with this passage, but uh, we're getting close. So, John 5.24. Verily, 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 and most assuredly, I'm translating this into King James. <laughs> I said, verily, verily, right? Yeah. Truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who has sent me, him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So examine this word, the verse, uh, we... Uh, hear the gospel uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We place our faith in him. We have eternal life. Now here he says, him who sent me, he's talking about the message from the Father, but certainly the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear him. So whatever whatever the Father reveals, the Son does as well. The individual here who believes that message has everlasting life. Uh, Notice presently, not when you die, you have eternal life now. And by the way, that phrase will be explained as well with the last word of this verse. Shall not come into judgment, meaning future eschatological judgment. Now, we will all stand before the Bema, all believers in the church age, but we will not face the great white throne judgment. We will not come into future judgment, but has passed out of a state, we can, take, we can say this is stative, a state of spiritual death, and we examined the doctrine of death last week, and then transferred now into a state of life. And that life is having eternal life. And we're going to address that last phrase here. We have passed from death, but now into a state of life. The life there is spiritual life through regeneration. We call that being born again. Being born again. Simple definition of being born again. Dr. Walbert always loved his definition of the new birth. He said the impartation of eternal life. What does it mean to be born again? It means you have eternal life. That is the new birth. A lot of people read moral reformation to that. We hear about people becoming born again. They change their lifestyle. They change this plan or all that. They're born again. It's kind of a change type of thing. But the real, though, change comes with what God provides. He gives us life. He gives us everlasting life when we believe the gospel. And so we call that the doctrine of regeneration. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we dealt with the spiritual death in the first part of this verse, or first verse here. Uh, but we also have the concept of life as well um, in this section. And you he hath made alive. Now that is added in translation. It's found actually in uh, verse 5 in the Greek. It's added for clarity by the translators here. It's repeated. So to make it more readable, you see that in italics, but it is in the context though in verse 5. So I think this is an appropriate translation. 
you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, uh, as an unsaved individual, you were separated from a holy God. We call that spiritual death. But now, believing the gospel, you have eternal life. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with him. We're now made alive. By grace, you've been saved. The means of our being made alive is by God's grace through the instrumentality of faith. And that's the only thing God requires of us is faith alone in Christ alone. So we pass out of a state of death into a state of spiritual life. So, as I mentioned here at the beginning, regeneration uh, is the impartation of of eternal life. God giving us life. Uh, We have that in the Gospel of John. We'll look at that verse first. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus this very thing. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? He's taking a physical birth, but there is spiritual birth that he's referring to. How can he be? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus doesn't get it yet at this point. He thinks about physical birth. But Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, born of water is referring to physical birth. A lot of people ask, what is that born of water? Some people make the analogy, well, water is typified of the Word of God, which is true. We're born of the Word of God. But I think here in this context, though, he's talking about physical birth. He's contrasting two births here. Physical, which is breaking of the water sack, starts a birth process, and then born of the Spirit. So we're physically born, but yet we need the new birth. And um, therefore, uh, that is the answer. We need a second birth. Literally, that word born again means can have a dual connotation, born a second time, but it also can mean born from above. And both are true. We're born from above. It's something God provides. Uh, yet we're born again. We need a second birth. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, that is, the Spirit of God cleansing us from our sins at the point of new birth. And that's alluded to, by the way, in the one-time bath in John 13. You remember Jesus said, He who is washed need only to wash his feet. There's a typology there in the sense that once you're born again, you don't need to be reborn again and again. He didn't say you must be born again and again and again. You can't lose your salvation. But when we're out of fellowship of God with God, we need our feet washed. Uh, we don't need a whole bath again. We need restoration of fellowship. There's a great analogy there when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He was teaching a spiritual thing there in John 13. By the washing of regeneration and renewing, renovating of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life. Now, uh, we introduce this uh, here in various terms of the new birth. Uh, Regeneration, uh, being born again, you're called a child of God, a son of God in those various verses, and a new creation. So those are various terms referring to that same event. 
called the new birth. So there's various terms describing the same uh, process there, same event. First uh, Peter one twenty three. Let's look at that passage here. First Peter chapter one verse twenty three. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God or the gospel from the scripture is the vehicle or means of the new birth. Um, And therefore, we need to hear the gospel of our salvation and we need to believe. And uh, that is how we are born again. Then we have the fact that we're a child of God at new birth. We become part of God's family uh, in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who do what? Believe in his name. Once again, it's only by faith that we become a child of God. By the way, uh, this verse, receiving him, some people try to misuse that to say, ask Jesus into your heart. That's not what the text says. You know, you're not saved by asking Jesus into your heart. I think Pastor Roxer wrote a little booklet, Seven Reasons Not Why Not to Ask Jesus into Your Heart. (laughs) Don't tell children, just ask Jesus into your heart. What Jesus? What did he do? You know, you need to understand his death, certainly in resurrection. You you know, who's this Jesus? Uh, uh, So, you know, you're not saved by asking Jesus into your heart. When you believe, he automatically comes in. I don't have to ask him in. Uh, he automatically comes in well when I believe. And that's, by the way, in the context, if you look in John 1.12, uh, the fact that uh, those who believe in his name, but as many as receive him, to them he gave right to become children of God, defined this way to those who believe in his name. That's receiving Christ. We receive Christ by doing what? Believe in, believe in his name. See? So it's not asking Jesus into your heart, but... You become a child of God when you believe. Uh, Romans eight sixteen. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. And by the way, that's why we can cry out, "Abba, Father, Daddy, Father." We have a new relationship now, being part of the family of God. And what is the spirit bearing witness to our spirit? That's not kind of a mystical, oh, I feel my God or Holy Spirit that I'm saved, or my my spirit that I'm saved. People take that as kind of a mystical impression or feeling that I'm born again. Um, That's not what he's saying here. He's saying the witness is to God. And the Old Testament law required two or three witnesses. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established. So the fact that I have the indwelling Holy Spirit and our human spirit, those are two witnesses that we are now children of God. They witness to God that we are his children. Now let's take a look at um, the next te- next passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We are children uh, once we become born again. First John three two. First John three two. Beloved, now we are children of God. Not when we die. Now 
now. Now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed at His coming, at the rapture, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now we're, we're called a son of God. We won't look at all these passages. Second Corinthians 6.18, Galatians 3.26. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You know that passage, Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Something that God did. A creative work of God. Old things have passed away. That doesn't mean all your old habits are gone once you're born again. It means your old identity in Adam. Positional truth. My identity in Adam is gone. Now I'm in Christ. So I'm, you, know, you know, when you look at the whole human race, you're either in one of two people. You're either in Adam or in Christ. One or two. You're unsaved. You're in Adam. If you're a believer in the church age, you're in Christ. So that old relationship has been changed. That old identity has been changed. And now you're a child of God. Uh, so we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And um, we're created for good works. Ephesians 2.10, by the way. That new birth gives you co- the capacity to live a godly life now. Whereas before, you did not have the capacity to live a godly life. The unsaved person cannot live a godly life. They could be moral, but not spiritual. And a lot of people don't understand the difference between morality and spirituality. A person can have morals... But they are not spiritual because only the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. So I could do a lot of good things and be, you know, giving people, uh, you know, gifts and money and, and, and uh, you know, be kind and all that. But I can't, I can't produce, the unsaved person cannot have the production of the Holy Spirit. Only the believer can. So we need to divide and distinguish between morality and what the Spirit provides, spirituality. Now, uh, definition of Walford, regeneration, born again, is an act of God, something that God does, not something you do. It's not reformation, it's regeneration. God doesn't ask you to turn over a new leaf, change your lifestyle, turn from your sins, do any of those religious things. He has simply asked you to believe in the gospel. And therefore, the Holy Spirit does the work of birthing. Think about that. You did not affect your own physical birth. (laughs) So there's nothing you could do to affect as far as works are concerned, other than faith, which is not a work, by the way. That's the only thing we do to affect your spiritual birth. So born again is an act of God in which he gives a believer in Christ everlasting life. And as a result, the believer passes out of spiritual death as in our text in John 5.24, into a state of spiritual life. Walbert says this in his Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The central thought in the Doctrine of Regeneration is that eternal life is imparted. Back to our definition. I'm going to repeat it several times. You say, you already said that. That's good. Repetition is good. Uh, uh, being born again means the impart- impartation of eternal life. God giving you eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. That's it. So the central thought in the doctrine of regeneration is that eternal life is imparted. Regeneration meets the need created by the presence of spiritual death. Why do we need life? Because we're separated from God. We're dead. That's why we need spiritual life. The whole human race, whether they realize it or not, are, they are dead in trespasses and sins. D. 
Death means separation. They're separated from the Holy God. Now they need a new relationship with God through believing the gospel. Walbert says this further, page 136 of his book on the Holy Spirit. The person who before regeneration was spiritually dead and blind to spiritual truth now becomes alive to a new world of reality. As a blind man for the first time contemplates the beauties of color and perspective when sight is restored, so the newborn soul contemplates new revelation of spiritual truth. For the first time, he is able to understand the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is able now to enjoy the intimacies of fellowship with God and freedom and prayer. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, Paul calls this newness of life. <laughs> uh, just a whole, you're in a whole new realm once you're born again. A whole new realm. Now he says this, as his life is under the control of the Holy Spirit, and that's the key, he is able to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Utterly foreign to natural man. They, they don't get it because they're blind. That's why I don't get it. Try to explain a color to a blind man. What does it mean? Explain the experience of sight. You know, how can you explain that to a blind person? And uh, notice here, his whole being has new capacities for joy and sorrow, love, peace, guidance, and all the host of realities in the spiritual world. While regeneration is not an experience. Now, this is very important. Regeneration is not experience. You know, it happens that fast. I have Christ's righteousness imputed to my account. I don't feel like that. You know, but I have that reality. So it just, you know, experience takes time, right? To feel something, experience something. It takes time. But all this happens in a moment of time. I'm passed out of death into life like that. So it's not felt. Now, I may, because I know the Word of God, peace, have peace for the first time because I'm aware of who I am in Christ. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about not belittling experience. Um, I could, uh, you know, have tremendous joy knowing that I'm saved forever. I can be joyful, uh, but the act itself is not a feeling. So many people depend on feelings, and therefore it's not a feeling. Now, he says regeneration is not an experience. It is the foundation, though, for all Christian experience. It forms a basis for experience, which, by the way, your Christian life is lived in the ministry of, of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the experiential aspect of your Christian life. And it's once you're controlled by the Spirit of God, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness is experienced in you as a believer. Okay, That is the control of the Spirit in your life. But get, having eternal life in, in that process of new birth, that quick. So that in itself is non-experience. I think people are looking at, okay, I went down to this altar and I prayed a sinner's prayer, and I'm looking for some kind of, uh, you know, exuberance or you know, hearing angels or what. I don't know what they're seeking. They kind of want something to, to to feel, and it's not that at all. We simply believe the word of God, but we will start to feel joy. We will start to feel peace. 
as we're walking in fellowship with God, we will have that understanding of the Word of God. You will see those things. You will see those things as you're walking in fellowship with God uh, because you're now in a totally different realm having experienced or having received the the new birth. All right. Now, we saw that uh, death means spiritual, spiritual death. Now, notice here, uh, let's go back. Let's go forward to the following verse. I think we're looking at uh, John five twenty five. Let's look at back in our text here. Didn't put the verse up there, but uh, John five. For as the Father, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, um, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Now, another thing that God's promise is not only eternal life, but a resurrected life. And therefore, that's another benefit of the new birth. Where we have eternal life, but resurrection is guaranteed. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8, Paul says, Those he justified, them he also glorified. It's as if it already occurred. It's certain. It's guaranteed that once you have been declared righteous, you will receive a resurrected body. So he's going to talk about the resurrection here. I'm going to address that. But I want to address that phrase, we'll hear. Those who are in the grave will hear his voice. Now, can you hear the gospel and believe? Yes. I want to address the hyper-Calvinist view. Well, dead man can't hear anything, therefore God has to give you faith. And the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. We have volition, we have the ability to believe the gospel. Now, certainly, because of our spiritual blindness, we need the ministry of conviction. And the Holy Spirit in John 16 will convince me of my need for Christ. But even at that point, I still need to believe the gospel. I still need to believe the gospel. So let's stress this issue here. These strict and hyper-Calvinists are telling people that there's nothing they can do to believe until God gives them the faith which the Bible never teaches that. You're the one who believes. Which they could, which, uh, with which they could believe. What must he do to be saved? The sinner must beg for God to give him saving faith. So the condition for salvation is praying for faith, not believing in what Messiah did on the cross. See, a faulty view of how this process works leads to a false gospel. They do not see they they do not seem to see the contradiction because they claim the reason that regeneration must precede faith they got it backwards by the way <laughs> they teach that you're born again first then you believe how convoluted is that it says we need to believe to be born again but you said no you're born again then you believe that's their faulty doctrine uh, in their their faulty theology. So going back here to this quote, they do not seem to see the contradiction because they claim the reason that regeneration must precede faith is because a person is totally dead in sin. But they tell the person who is dead in sin to read the Bible, to believe it, and to beg God to give saving faith. They contradict themselves saying that. As someone once said, this is a pretty, pretty lively corpse. They, they downplay the necessity of faith or belief because of this concept that regeneration must come first. And just given that as an example of the resurrection, there are those who are dead who will hear the voice of the Son of God. 
dead people hearing the voice of the Son of God. That's true in resurrection. It's also true in re- if it's true in resurrection. It's also true in regeneration. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> that certainly is an extreme view of total depravity. The Bible does teach. What is the biblical doctrine of total depravity? You hear the Calvinistic view, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, um, or limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, the TULIP. Uh, their view of total depravity goes beyond what the Word of God teaches. So they view that regeneration precedes faith. They, re- they also say that God must give you faith in order to believe, and the Bible doesn't teach that. So that is an extreme view. I think it's Arnold Frutenbaum who gave you that prior quote here. All right. Now, spiritually dead people can respond to the gospel by faith. Uh, this, of course, does not eliminate the need for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And let's look at the exact work of the Holy Spirit to the lost. Understand that. There is the work of the Holy Spirit toward the believer, multifaceted. Uh, regeneration, indwelling, baptism, sealing, filling, you know, teaching. There's many works or ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believer, but there's also ministry if you're an unsaved person. And this is the key. <clears throat> John 16, 8 and 9. John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. He's speaking about the helper that he would send at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is encouraging, by the way. Think about the beginning of the church in Acts 2. And the command to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus gives this command uh, before, after his resurrection, before his ascension. But the comfort is that you're not, out, you're not all on your own in order to try to convince people to believe the gospel. It's not simply up to your skillful... Uh, apologetics. Now, apologetics. That they, I do believe they have a role or place, but it's not all up to our human reasoning. It's not up to our our um, exact verbiage. It's not up to, in the sense that we don't have to be polished in order to give the gospel. God can use us as weak vessels, and people can believe. The only thing that we need to make clear is how to pass from death to life. We need to make the gospel clear. But as far as persuasion, you know, we think we can buttonhole and persuade people. Really, the Holy Spirit will do that role. All we have to do is make the gospel clear. And the gospel itself, as Paul says, is the power of God, right? Romans 1.16, to salvation. There's power in that word. So when the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, has come, he will do what? Convict the world of sin. And of righteousness and of judgment. Now he defines what those are in the following verses. What sin does the Spirit convict the lost of? Well, it's a sin of, you know, adultery, lust, or lying, or thievery, or whatever. No. And unfortunately, evangelists witness on that premise. I've got to convince you that you're a dirty, rotten individual before I can give you the gospel. Now, most people, if they're honest, will realize that they have offended a holy God. Now, certainly, if they don't, they believe they're perfect. We need to show them some verses that says all have sinned. That includes you, includes me too. Begin with yourself. I'm a sinner, and the Bible says we're all sinners. So, if they need that information, you know, then give them that verse. But the Spirit of God will come and convict of one sin. 
of sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. There is one sin that keeps them out of hell. One. And this is the main one. The sin of unbelief. And the Spirit of God centers on that particular sin. That unsaved person needs to believe. So the Spirit convinces that person of their need for the gospel. So we have the convicting work. Because of total depravity, I believe God doesn't have to give you the faith. But what God does do is give you the convicting work of the Holy Spirit so that you will have the opportunity to accept or reject. As a matter of fact, I think I have this later in the notes. Let's turn back to John 3, uh, John chapter 3, verse um, 36, John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So we have the believer and unbeliever. By the way, if you have a translation that has obey, New American Standard, that doesn't quite convey the meaning. That word in the Greek can mean obey in the sense that you obey the gospel. Okay. So theologically, we can say if you have that translation obey, it means simply, how, how do I obey? I believe the gospel. That's my obedience. It's not talking about works here. So if you do have that New American Standard obey, that translation there. But I think, though, the essence of it means, as in the New King James, does not believe. I think that's a correct translation. Do not believe. But the issue is your faith or lack thereof. That's the point. That's the point. And notice John 3.18 even further clarifies this. He who, believes in the, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Here it is. Because God didn't give me the faith. I wasn't elected. Oh, wait a second. What does the text say? Because he has not believed. It didn't say it because God has not given me the faith. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The onus to believing is on the individual. And when, if you're an unsafe person, you stand before the great right throne judgment, you can't say that, well, you didn't give me the faith, God. I wasn't one of your elect, so really it's your fault, God. The Bible doesn't teach that. It tells you you have the opportunity to believe. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, you have an opportunity to believe the gospel or reject it. The ball's in your court. And therefore, you need to believe. And the Holy Spirit will come along and convict in that direction. He'll convince you. Now, so there's coming a day, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, in John 5.24, we dealt with spiritual life. But here I think he's talking about physical life. So he's speaking of resurrection here in John chapter 5, verse 24. Now, if you look back at the text in John or John 5.25, you look back at the text, he elaborates on that resurrection in verse 29 and uh, in this text, or 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for all the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. See that? 
Now we're going to we're going to explain this further in uh, verse 30. So I'm going to hold off the full explanation of this verse. It seems to be a passage teaching work salvation, but it's really not. Okay, I'm going to go into great detail later. Not today, but on this passage. Something to think about. Let's read verse 29. They will come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life. So it seems like you know, you have to do good in order to be resurrected. It's not really saying that. We'll explain what that means. Doing good, by the way, is believing the gospel. It's not salvation by works. Um, those who have done evil to the resurrection condemnation, meaning they didn't believe the gospel, they die in their sins. I'm giving you the shortened version, but we're going to elaborate on that further. Point is, though, he expands on that resurrection, at those res- re- the resurrection program, I would say, in verse 28 and 29. Two classes of resurrection, by the way. There's a resurrection to life, and there's a resurrection to condemnation. Separating the two resurrections, by the way, they have a distinct purpose. And they're not all the same. So one is to condemnation, meaning eternal destiny in the lake of fire and the other is to spend eternity with God forever in heaven and there's various stages of those, the, the resurrection to life including the rapture first of all or the, the rapture stage meaning resurrection at the rapture and then the resurrection of Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation resurrection of tribulation saints again I have a chart later we'll deal with these resurrections now, still with the, this verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, this is a difficult passage, and this is, a, you know, at first glance, it seems to say that uh, the Son does not have life in himself. God had to give him that. Well, if that was true, then he would not be God. Okay? As a matter of fact, if you took that view, you would have to contradict John chapter 1, verse 4. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, the Word, and life was the light of men. Uh, God has inherent life. He's not given life. He is life. Same with Jesus Christ. He has inherent life. So we have to explain what he's saying here. I want to tell you, first of all, what the text doesn't mean before I explain what it does mean. (laughs) So it doesn't mean that somehow the Son is inferior to the Father. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ is less than God. The Bible doesn't teach that. The issue is the Father and the Son has power to give light to others. They have the authority to give light to others. So that authority is granted for the Son to give life. And certainly... uh, we, we see that in this context. The Father gave this power to the Son when He sent Him on His mission to redeem and gave life to the dead. This life does not refer to internal life of the Trinity. So it doesn't mean He doesn't have life in Himself etern- internally. He does. John 1.4, in Him was life. He does have that. But this life does not refer to the internal life of the Trinity, but the power to give life to people. He has the authority to give eternal life to all who believe. Including, by the way, resurrected life. And later on this will square with the fact that uh, all judgment has been committed to the Son. The Father has given future judgment in the role to the Son. He's delegated that. The Son has the power to judge. 
uh, and therefore the Son also has power to give life to those who believe. Now, the light that the Son gives is not only spiritual light, that's true in John 5.24, but now we're talking about physical life. We're talking about resurrected life. We saw verse 28. So it's wonderful that not only think that I have eternal life when I believe, but this body that will one day decay and, and go back to the dust apart from the rapture will be resurrected. And therefore, life will continue. I will continue in a glorified body. A body not subject to decay, not subject to tears, not subject to death. As in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 and following. Now the word granted, uh, didomi, in the Greek means to bestow or grant. As it's translated here, bestow or give. So as the Father hath life in himself, he has bestowed the Son to have life. So the Father has bestowed to the Son. First of all, all judgment. Going back to John chapter 5, verse 22. John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. There is a authority given to the Son for future judgment. So I think ultimately, even at the great white throne judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that the unsaved will look at. And that, to me, that's especially significant because Jesus Christ is the one who died for that lost person. And imagine looking Christ in the eye and say, in Christ that I died for you so that you would not have to go to this place. But you rejected my offer. You rejected my son. And that will be a sobering thing one day for then look into the eyes of the divine judge. If you want to see a picture of that divine judge, read Revelation chapter 1. He's described eyes as a flame of fire. Read the picture of that son. And uh, one day the unsaved will have to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and explain why they rejected Jesus and the offer of life. But the Father has granted or bestowed judgment, delegated, we could say, delegated authority. Now, Sometimes we hear of delegated authority. It doesn't mean that the person working underneath you, as far as a person, is inferior. Okay? I can even delegate authority to equals, right? I can delegate authority to someone who's equal with me. And I think that's the case certainly with the Father and the Son. The Father delegates something to the Son and doesn't refer to the Son being less than equal to the Father. Life, eternal life. And so we, we address the issue of passing from death to life. So judgment has been delegated to the Son. He's delegated to give people eternal life. And then future judgment is delegated in verse 27 as well. And then a mission and purpose to finish the work. In John chapter 5, verse 28. So he's going to one day resurrect those in the graves. They will hear his voice. So we have the delegated authority given to the Son. And I think verse 57 explains verse 20, or excuse me, 57. John, verse 27 explains verse 26. Let's read those two texts together. That's real quick here. So verse 26 says, As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself, comma, 
and has given him authority to execute judgment also. Authority is the issue. Because he is the son of man. Okay? Exousia, the Greek word for authority, means the right to control or command. We hear about command and control. He has that authority. Absolute power or warrant. He's given that right to the Son, the Father has. Here in verse 27, now he speaks of judgment. He's given him authority to execute judgment. The word krisis in the Greek means to judge and enforce that judgment. And therefore, as a judge in court, sometimes that judge has the power not only to sentence a person, but the length of sentence is delegated and how he sentences that individual is delegated into his hand. And so the same with the son. He has the right to a judge and he has the right to sentence the individual to the lake of fire, enforce that judgment. So he has authority and the right to judge. Why? Because he is the son of man, because of his position. Um, Acts 17.31, let's look at that, Acts 17.31. Uh, here is um, Paul's apologetic. What Paul does here with the philosophers of Athens is what is called pre-evangelism. Okay? Pre-evangelism prepares people for understanding the gospel, uh, meaning that he speaks of creation truth. And depending on the individual, there are some people who do not accept the fact that God is creator. And so you have to start with square one. I think this is some of the missionary, New Tribes mission. They go into certain places where, you know, they have to explain from the beginning that God is the creator. And then the fact that God sent his son Jesus. So Paul is explaining to these individuals that worship false idols the fact that God is creator and one day we're going to be accountable to that creator. And therefore he's preparing them for the need for the son. Uh, So he does what's called pre-evangelism. Um, now, in Acts 17.31, uh, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And God ordained that son to execute judgment. He has given him assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. A dead person cannot judge anyone. So he validates the resurrection by the fact that he is risen from the dead so that he will one day be at judge and force that judgment. Now, the Son of Man is a term referring to the Messiah. Uh, Daniel uses that term, so does that, that term is also used in Matthew 24 and 25, the referring to the second coming. Uh, but Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And the kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So it's also a term that is used of the Messiah. Messianic. So... He has the right to judge because he is the Messiah. And I think what uh, John is doing here, what uh, and Jesus is saying that I am the Messiah. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
And therefore, you need to believe in Him. All authority has been given to Him. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, He has the right to judge the earth. And so, certainly during the tribulation period, at least, He pours out the sealed judgments upon an unbelieving world. And that's a precursor of His future judgments. Think about temporal judgments. Judgments in the sealed trumpet and bold judgments in the tribulation. Judgment at His second coming, which He judges the Antichrist. And then what we call the eschatological judgment of the great white throne. So the fact that he is judge in the past, the fact that he's judging currently or in, in the near future, and then will also indicate that he has the authority to judge in the far future. Let's take a look at that text, Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The idea of opening the scroll is opening judgments upon an unbelieving world. Who is worthy to do this? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice the Old Testament designations for Jesus. He's that prophesied lion, by the way. Go back to Genesis 49. Uh, He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Messianic prophecy here. Uh, He is the root of David. Davidic covenant, messianic prophecy. Um, notice here, so this one is identified as the Messiah of the Old Testament. It can only be Jesus. He's specific in identifying the one who's worthy to judge. And then he says, He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He's the one who has that authority. Um, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has the authority to execute judgment. Uh, Jude 14, Jude 14, in reference to his second coming, he will judge when he returns to the earth. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, by the way, that's very important when you look at the young earth position. Those genealogies, there's not millions of years of gaps in those genealogies. There's uh, not missing people in those genealogies. He takes it from a literal approach. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. I would translate saints. Now, the word holy, hagios, means it could be believers. They are holy. They are called saints. It can be angels. I think it can include both. He comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, saints and angels. To do what? This is at his second coming. To execute judgment on all. And that's his return in the second coming. To convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodliness in that verse. Uh, so he's showing here that he is worthy to execute judgment. A lot of people are squeamish about 
the judgment of Jesus Christ. They see Jesus as a little lamb. He hates war. He hates, you know, he won't judge anybody. He loves me, accepts everybody. They need to read the book of Revelation. Revelation 19. The blood flows. It's splattered on his garments as he executes judgment with the sword of his mouth. Read that imagery in Revelation 19. Um, it's not going to be pleasant for those who have rebelled him against him in the tribulation period when he comes as divine judge and uh, therefore um, the bible clearly teaches that uh, yes god does love the whole human race but that's why jesus came to die so that they would not perish Uh, they would not come into judgment and the opposite is true those who reject will come into judgment by the divine judge revelation 19 2 notice here as the second coming I think this further elaborates the scene in Jude 14 and 15. So this is when Christ, after seven-year tribulation period, comes down to the earth with the sword judging his enemies, certainly the Antichrist and his armies. Revelation 19.2, seen in heaven right before that, occur, that, that event, for true and righteous are his judgments. His judgments are right. They're true. Um, because he had judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication he avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her going back to Genesis by the way 9 whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for man is made in God's image capital punishment is divine justice because a person takes someone else's life you're taking someone who is made in God's image because God holds life at such a high value. A person who commits capital murder is worthy of death. And that's justice. And therefore, he is true and right when he issues judgment as he returns as the Son of Man. And notice here in verse 11 of Revelation 19, Now saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And I like this phrase here. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, if you're in the you're in the sixty, you lived in the sixties and heard the, the the song about how evil war is, any war, you know, you're going against the word of God. There can be just wars, by the way. Now, certainly, it's horrible things that happen in warfare. We certainly prefer peace, but when you have people bent on wickedness and evil. And you have to defend your country, your territory. War is necessary. As in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible says there's a time of war and a time of peace. We strive for peace, but people are bent on war. There's a time to judge. Here, there's an unbelieving world that's bent on bloodshed or killing fellow believers. And Christ comes to avenge those deaths. Think about it. That's one of the reasons why he judges. He avenges those deaths. And he's a just God. Now we have the judgment of sheep and goats. Another judgment by the Son of Man. Uh, we have that Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 30 and 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Again, that term, Matthew, or excuse me, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Son of Man. Matthew consistently in the Olivet Discourse uses the term Son of Man to refer to the second coming. The Messiah who will come and set up his kingdom. But 
before that kingdom is established, he will judge those who have mistreated the Jews during the tribulation, my brethren. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory as his future messianic kingdom. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So this judgment will be based on how they treated my brethren. Verse 40, the king who answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. There are three classes of humanity. What are those three classes? The Jew, Gentile, and the church. Right? All right. Church consists of all saved people from Pentecost to the rapture. We're not talking about the church here. We have Gentiles who are physically alive. So what is the third category, my brethren? I think by process of elimination has to be the Jews. Those who lived through the tribulation. Remember, it can't be the church because the church is in heaven. So these, my brethren, by the way, that is a phrase referring to Jews. These Gentiles persecuted the Jews and martyred them during the tribulation. Therefore, they're held to an account. Some of them did not. Those will be the ones who were believers. They protected my brethren. They fed them. They clothed them. Uh, There were others who don't. So these nations will be held to an account by the divine judge. And then we had a great white throne judgment. Let's look at that. This is uh, probably the most sobering time of judgment in all of human history. And if you don't believe that God can judge, you haven't read your Bible. Uh, And did not God destroy the world by a flood? Did not God destroy the whole human race by a flood in the book of Genesis except for eight people? Yes, He did. Uh, Did not God rain fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, He did. Cannot God even judge his own people, the children of Israel, and deporting them from Babylon and deporting them from Assyria? You read all the way through Old and New Testament, we see God as a divine judge. And here, certainly the Son has been committed all judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and fled, heaven fled away. I think that shows that the destruction of heavens and earth before this great white throne judgment. We have the resurrection of unsaved dead and then I think they will witness everything they have invested, invested in this life go up in smoke. The earth will burn before their eyes from their vantage point in space. So look down and see the earth dissolving by fire. And now... They are face to face with the divine judge. And notice there is found no place for them. That's the heaven and earth. I think that's why he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, not because they're saved by works, I think, degrees of punishment. And also their works do not measure up to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which will point to the book of life. And they were judged according to the things written in it. The sea gave up the dead. Those who are, uh, re- they will be resurrected. Those who have died and were buried at sea. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Now, very important, only unbelievers 
go to Hades now. Since the resurrection of Christ, remember before the resurrection, Luke 16, Hades consists of a righteous compartment, unrighteous compartment. Jesus took those out of the righteous compartment between his death and resurrection. Now Hades here only consists of unsaved people. So we only have unsaved people at this judgment. And the grave, which is the body, housing place where the body is, and the soul are united together. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, switch location, instead of Hades now, those who were taken out of the grave in, in Hades, they are cast into the final place of judgment called the lake of fire. As Jesus said, the worm dies not, or the fire is never quenched. And uh, they will be placed in a place of eternal torment. This is the second death. Second death means eternal separation from the Holy God. Death doesn't mean cessation of existence. When you physically die, you do not cease to exist. This is spiritual death. This is eternal separation from the Holy God. And notice, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's not an equal status here. Your name is written in the book of life. You're not going to be at this judgment. But if your name is is not in the book of life, you will appear at this judgment and you will be cast into a lake of fire and experience eternal judgment from the divine judge. And therefore, we can avoid that by simply believing the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins to give us life. He arose bodily so that he can guarantee that eternal life. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, that's, that's it. That's all God asks you to do. Well, who's the object of faith? In Him, Christ, shall not perish, it suffer eternal ruin. That word perish doesn't mean cessation of existence either. Suffer eternal ruin. But have, right when you believe, eternal life. Father, We thank you, Lord, for your word and the fact that all judgment has been delegated to the Son. What a sobering thing, Lord. And Lord, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And help us, Lord, to accept the authority of the word of God on these things and not our viewpoint, our own opinion. But Lord, we thank you if we have those of us who have believed the gospel, we will not come into judgment. We have passed out of that state of death, spiritual death, into a permanent state of life. And we give you praise for that truth, Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.